Welcome back to the South African History Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 21, and we're probing the growth of Nguni societies, as well as the terrible smallpox epidemic of 1713. First, a note about historical records. As I've mentioned, the use of archaeology surveys and oral history along with specific tools such as pottery and metal artifacts provides quite a bit of detail about the history of the Nguni and Sutu, as well as the Twana in South Africa. However, the oral history comes with an obvious warning, and nowhere is that more important than along the eastern seaboard, the future home of the Zulu. After the development of Zulu power in the early 1800s, oral historians were pressurized to tell the story from the point of view of what had been a tiny clan before Shaka came along in the early 19th century. This narrative cleansing, if you like, expunged a great deal of the knowledge traditional societies had developed over hundreds of years. I'm mentioning this now because that's unlike other parts of South Africa. The Kosa, for example, the Sutu, the Twana and Venda, whose individual clan narratives are still largely intact. Compounding this truth decay is Nguni archaeology in KwaZulu-Natal is less well known than that of Twana and Sutu archaeology. This is the result of the difficulty in locating early Nguni settlements as well as the Zulu state's revisionist oral history. In my earlier podcasts, I explained how the Nguni settlements of KwaZulu date back to the 11th and 12th centuries. There is a complete break from the end of the early Iron Age period in terms of ceramic and settlement styles, known as the Blackburn, which ended around 1300, to a second phase. This is referred to as the Moore Park phase and dates between 14th and 18th centuries. During this period, farmers expanded into the KwaZulu-Natal Midlands and occupied higher grassland spurs and were the first to use stone in constructing settlement boundaries. Full mixed farming was practiced despite the settlements being placed on steep slopes at some distance from water and even arable land. It's obvious that they were constructed with defense in mind as cooler and drier conditions caused an increased pressure on resources then tilled the fields adjacent to the streams below these hills. There was also the global period of the Little Ice Age to consider. The ancestors of the Amatkoza had settled the highlands around Craddock, for example, and Graaf Renet by 1500, and the Moor Park ceramics had been found on the south of the Ponderland coast in the Transkei and in the Eastern Cape borderlands near Grahamstown. We also know these people began to trek out of the coastal lowlands in KwaZulu-Natal as well into the Waterberg of the Limpopo province, selecting defensive positions on the sides or top of steep hills. Contemporary Sutu and Tswana settlements were by now also to be found on hilltops. It's known that there was some sort of consistent standoff between the two people for some time, possibly as much as 100 years, before the Nguni people began to be integrated in Sutu Tswana society, presumably through intermarriage. We're most interested in the later Moor Park period because that's when the most significant movement of Nguni speakers from KwaZulu-Natal occurred. This gave rise to a whole new group of people called the Northern and Southern Ndebele. They are based around present-day Mokopani and Pretoria. There were two distinct movements. The Southern Ama Ndebele traced their descent to a mythical ancestor called Musi, whereas the Northern Ama Ndebele are linked to the Langa, who left from an area in northern KwaZulu-Natal. We have some oral evidence as well as archaeological proof that these two movements took place between 1630 and 1670 as the Dutch began settling the Cape and the coastal trade character changed, although there's no direct link between these two people at this point. And the main driver, we believe, was not colonialism, 
but the little ice age, because between these decades, the globe experienced the worst effects of the disastrous change in the climate. There is something important to mention about this movement into the escarpment by the people of KwaZulu-Natal in the 1700s. It was always unidirectional. In other words, from the coastal lowlands into the Weiterberg or the escarpment, and that means always from east to west. The 17th and 18th centuries were a period of significant movement away from KwaZulu, and this correlates with a simultaneous development of the Sutu and Swana people. The unbelievably beautiful Caledon Valley of the Free State is a case in point. This was a bolt hole that alleviated ecological and climate pressures during the Little Ice Age, and we know this from the archaeological record as well as oral history. It's no surprise if you look at the geography of South Africa, some of the best farmland in the country is right there today. The push may have also come from the Portuguese trading around Delagoa Bay, which had a knock-on effect through central southern Africa to some extent, a picture we've heard about in previous podcasts. And the move came with a new food technology, that originated in Central America. Maize, or what we call mealies in South Africa. Maize growing appears to have arrived with the Arabs and Portuguese and the introduction was incredibly quick. The coastal Tsonga and Nguni people were bolstering food production that encouraged population growth and one of the main foods was maize. Maize, though, is a sensitive plant compared to the ancestral sorghums and millets, but with the right rainfall conditions, the plant can produce significantly more cereal per hectare. Because it's sheathed, it does not require the same level of labor constantly running around chasing away birds and other pests as they would with sorghum and millet. There's a lot of debate about exactly when maize first arrived, but we know that west of the escarpment, maize grindstones have been found, indicating they were in use by the early 1600s and is associated with European naval expansion. So by the end of the 17th century and into the 18th, there was a process of settlement growth, a trend which climaxed by the last quarter of 1700. As you'll hear in later podcasts, this coincided with the emergence of a truly large aggregated town system in which Tswana chiefdoms had developed a more centralized political system. The grassland areas of the Witwatersrand south across the Vaal River and along the escarpment areas to the east saw a surge of settlements through that century. The biggest were around Machalisburg, Rustenburg and Mariko, west of Pretoria. By the time First Europeans visited the Tlaping capital of Ditokong near Kuruman in 1812, for example. More than 10,000 people were living there in an extremely large town. As we'll hear, many had been forced there by the Defaktani, a time of troubles, but that's for later. Tswana oral histories describe the 1700s, though, as a time of war and violence. The power of senior Tswana chieftains, such as the Baharutsi in the Marika area, was eroding by the last quarter in the face of assertive competitors to the east. At the same time, far to the south, the governor of the Cape was leading a burgeoning growth of livestock and viticulture farming. Remember, Simon van der Stel had handed over the keys of the fort at De Kaap to his son, Willem Adrian van der Stel, in 1699. We heard how Willem had then handed out thousands of hectares of land to VOC officials, his brother and his father, and finally, of course, to himself. Shortly after 1700, a number of hammer blows would fall on the indigenous people of the Cape. First came the rapid northward expansion of settlement into the land of Wavran, that was the Tulbach Basin. This was the first region of settlement whose climate, terrain and distance from markets favoured a pastoral rather than a mixed agricultural economy. Between 1701 and 1703, farmers along the whole northern edge of the colony suffered from massive attacks on their livestock. The attackers 
We're given the name Hottentots, San, but we're mostly Khoikhoi, who had lost their own livestock to the colonists over the past 50 years. They eyed the colonial herds with some interest. By the end of 1703, the attacks fizzled out, but the remaining Khoi in the Cape, who'd safeguarded their cattle and the VOC protection, suffered losses. And of course, Simon van der Stel had given notice that from then on, the Dutch would no longer form close ties with the Khoi on the peninsula. The second blow to the Khoi Khoi was the relaxation of the company's control over the Freeburgers. I mentioned that the Burgers were not friends of the VOC. The company was a monopoly and it treated Free Dutch very badly, at least in the eyes of the Free Dutch. In the next episodes, I'll tell you about Adam Tuss, for example, who is the symbol of this conflict and who was a fascinating character. The colony was now too big for officials to monitor its borders, and the Heeren 17 made matters worse by vastly increasing the rights of the Freeburgers, who complained endlessly. From February 1700 to October 1702, and again after July 1704, the Freeburgers were permitted to head inland to barter with the distant Khoi chieftains. This newfound freedom led directly to the Dutch Freeburgers looting and plundering the Khoi. The most notorious of these was an expedition in 1702, which ranged as far as the Isikosa up the east coast and stole almost 2,000 cattle and 2,500 sheep from the Inkwa. They were the largest Khoi tribe living between the Hasekwa and the Kosa. Colonists heard numbers jumped rather quickly due to both trade and this rustling. Freeburger herds before 1700 had grown by 3,700. During the first eight years of Willem Adrian van der Stel, their cattle numbered almost 9,000. Then, a terrible disease made its way ashore in 1713, borne by a visiting fleet of VOC ships that anchored in Table Bay. It sent its linen ashore to be washed by company slaves in Cape Town. The laundry bore a smallpox virus, which was to rage throughout that year, killing hundreds of Europeans and slaves. The impact on the Khoi was catastrophic. Unlike the slaves and Europeans, they had no immunity at all. Beginning with the Khoi on the peninsula, it spread relentlessly to the farms and then outwards to the independent tribes of southern Africa. There is a contemporary estimate of the extent of Khoi fatalities. Only one in ten survived. It was so extreme that the Khoi virtually disappeared from the records in subsequent years. The people who populated the southern Cape for thousands of years now virtually disappeared. Simultaneously, European pastoralists began expanding the frontier to the north and the east. The main zones of Dutch and Khoi interaction shifted to these regions, where the people lived in drier pastures and were less numerous and less well organized. At the same time, the nature of the Dutch settlers' agriculture also changed. No longer did they mix their farming as they moved. They began to concentrate on livestock, because that's what the landscape could sustain. A ranching economy grew, and the initiative shifted from the Dutch East India Company to the people we call Trek Boers. Smallpox had not completed its horrific trail. It was to emerge a number of times through the 1700s, spreading as far as the Tosa to the east, north to the Tswana, and returned via these people to the Nama of the semi-desert. Ironically, the Tosa eventually believed the smallpox came from the inland regions and blamed the Khoi. In some cases, the dreadful virus killed over half of the Nama and Goma people. The crucial feature of the new frontier was the rapid extension of the Trekboer economy, which had originated in the southwestern Cape through the late 1680s and 90s. These men and women would trek straight into the areas dominated by the San, the Bushmen. While they often confused the two, the Khoi with the San and vice versa, 
Dutch settler fear of the sand was similar to the fear that European settlers in America had of the Plains Indians. The sand were also armed with bows and arrows, but unlike Plains Indians, they did not ride horses. They used poison-tipped arrows, which could kill a large eland, and the stories of how they responded to the trek boers are legendary. So up the east coast, apart from the Khoi people known as the Gona, the only other large group were the Inkwa, but as you've heard, a raid by the trek boers on them in 1702 had battered their political power. Many of the Khoi people remaining on the felt took up positions of workers on these new ranches, seeing the trek boer as the lesser of two evils. After all, the pastorate's lifestyle was one they knew, it suited them, and they had security from robberies and raids. The trek boers allowed the Khoi to keep their own small herds and flocks on their farms. In the Kambidu region, the Karoo, within 10 years of the first trek boer arriving, almost all the Khoi were working on their farms. This would help the Dutch settlers fight against the sand throughout the 1700s, with most of these bushmen or sand disturbances occurring in the colony's northernmost regions. The battle between the Boer and sand began in the district of Stellenbosch, and then as the farmers moved further out into the Swellendam district. Apart from the 1701-1703 attacks, the period after the first smallpox outbreak between 1715 and 1716 would see robberies and sand attacks along the Berg River increase, for example. At times, the farms would have to be abandoned, things were so bad. This would lead to a final solution kind of logic by the Trek Boers after 1770, which basically was a genocide with Khoi connivance. But that's for later. What happened after 1703 was the formation of the first commando system the Trek Boers would use in the coming 150 years as they began to dominate the different African people of Southern Africa. I can't stress how important this is to our entire story, as later on the British would run into the commando system during the Anglo-Boer War and would regret it. The concept of the gallant Trek Boer sailing over the vast African felt fighting against what they saw as uncivilized heathens forms the marrow of the settler narrative in South Africa. It would become the Trek Boer's symbol of self-sufficiency, a way in which the growing Afrikaans-speaking Boer would deal with the wild and savage land using the force of modern weapons and waving the Bible as proof of divine providence. Ironically, the first commando was actually formed up under the aegis of the VOC, the company. Between 1700 and 1715, punitive expeditions consisted mainly of company employees with only a smattering of freeburgers. It was in 1715 that the first purely civilian commando was formed under free Dutch officers, but it was formed under the VOC's rule and depending on the company for ammunition. It was only in 1739 that a new stage was reached when commando service became compulsory for freeburgers in threatened regions. We must also mention the relationship between the Khoi San and the Khoi and slaves and its development. In a nutshell, they hated each other. There is a myth that because they were both brown, that the Khoi naturally would help escaped slaves. This is a romantic and false illusion. At times, the Khoi would help a slave, particularly the outlying people such as the Nama and the Inkwa. The relationship inside the camp itself, though, was rife. It was poisonous. It was marked by an extreme hostility, and only rarely, when the Dutch became a common enemy, did they break with their dislike of each other. Most slaves, you see, came from complex civilizations in India and Indonesia and even Madagascar, and they had a contempt of Khoi Khoi culture. The slaves regarded Khoi customs as disgusting, including the use of body grease and the eating of lice. The Khoi, for their part, enjoyed the freedom of the felt 
and the largely nomadic and egalitarian society and despised the slaves, seeing them as a failed people. Remember, the Khoi had their own slaves in the form of sand seized during raids and looked down on them as half-human. In fact, the word san is a Khoi word which is derogatory and implies a slave. In the earliest times, the Khoi feared escaped slaves more than colonists. During Van Riebeek's time, many escaped slaves were dragged back to the fort by the Khoi. The escaped slaves usually did so in groups of five or more and were often armed to the teeth with stolen firearms and implements. Often the escaped slaves would attack the Khoi household rather than try and barter goods. This repeated violence in the early days in particular hardened Khoi attitudes to the slaves. Remember, Van Riebeek gave bounties of copper to Khoi who returned slaves and in the coming decades many more such agreements were made. Starting in 1677, the rate was three fathoms of tobacco per slave returned. In 1680, it went up to one head of cattle. By 1713, the company began to pay hard cash at the rate of three rix dollars per slave. Another of the Dutch fears was that the Khoi and slaves would join together to fight against the VOC in order to drive the Europeans out of the Cape. We must remember that at this time the view of officials was not that there were two groups of people, black and white. People were broadly defined in two other groups, heathen or Christian. The freed Angolan slaves who were black were Christians, not heathens. That is strange to our modern ears, hard to believe almost. I have tried to avoid making the mistake of telling this story exclusively as just white or black, because that's not how history works. Our modern lens has skewed everything, and the trail of history is littered with revisionists who find it impossible to try to understand what was happening in the past beyond their own modern lives. History is replete with folks who find it impossible to put themselves in someone else's shoes, and the further back you go, the easier it is to tell a story using your modern concepts. Next episode, I'll tell you more about the arrival of one of the most influential Sufi leaders, Sheikh Yusuf's, who arrived at the Cape in 1694, and how he became crucial to the growth of Islam in Southern Africa. With that, it's time to halt proceedings. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination, or send me a mail through my site desmondlatham.blog, or if you're in a rush, direct message me on Twitter. My handle is at deslatham. Until next, tootsies. Thank you.